Again, Mark 1, chapter, verse 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. Amen. So Mark is one of four biographies about Jesus in the Bible. And question uh, I've often heard people ask is, why four? <laughs> why not just give us one? Why, why four and all? Well, all four consist of eyewitness testimonies that were intended to be written to different audiences and from different angles, quite literally. Uh, these people were looking at these events uh, in which Jesus ministered from different vantage points as they saw them happen on the ground, different perspectives next to different people, hearing things as they heard them. So consider, if you will, if you were to sequester, interview four different people viewing the same event, right? You're on an episode of Law and Order, you bring people in, whatever, and they gave the exact same detail down to, the, down to every little moment, everything that happened before, during, after. They gave the exact same detail of the story. What would you think really happened? Probably think it was a conspiracy, Right? This does not sound like this thing actually sounds like you guys got together beforehand and you talked about what you're going to say. Then you wrote it down. You went over it 13 times and you got into that witness room and you shared it. But on the other hand, if you sequestered four different people who supplied very different accounts with very different details, they would sound like total crackpots, right? This story is absolutely fabricated. There's nothing in your stories that sounds the same. That the fact that there are four different biographies called Gospels should actually instill confidence that we have an accurate picture of Jesus because real people witness real events with the end results of a blended overlap of stories, which are 98% the same, 95% the same, and speeches with a unique writing style and, and intended audience. And that's why we should have confidence that what we're reading here is in fact a true account of Jesus' life. Now Mark wrote from the very cosmopolitan city of Rome, the center of the world at the time, for people mostly of a non-Jewish background. 
And it was from the point of view of a very blunt, fast-moving, risk-taking friend of Jesus named Simon Peter. As sort of the spokesperson for the 12 closest friends of Jesus, Peter likely approached Mark because in part he felt pressure to write something about Jesus' life. He was always on the move, Peter was. He's one of these antsy kind of people you always see moving, can never sit still. And so we can imagine him saying, hey, well, I'm still young and I can still walk from one town to another. I'm going to let somebody else write. I'm going to just keep on speaking, traveling, acting for Jesus. Yeah, I prefer some, some younger, sort of bright-eyed Jesus follower. He can talk to me between visits, between healings between my preaching, I can give him some details of what really happened in Jesus' life. And in fact, the early church father Eusebius basically affirms the scenario I just laid out for you, that this is what happened. So Mark becomes the first gospel or biography of Jesus written. Matthew is listed first, but Mark is actually the first to be written. And we can hear how quickly Mark moves in his life and how quickly he wants to tell the story of Jesus' life. We hear it twice in what was read for us this morning by Maureen, the word immediately, immediately. Peter wants to keep moving. It's quick transition. The word immediately is a pivot so the story can move along, and that's how Mark's gospel reads. It's these continual pivots uh, from, from one part to another. In fact, in Mark's story, there are seven or eight major pivots and then there's one massive door hinge kind of pivot in the middle, which divides the biography into two major sections, which I'm going to share with you. The first is the king's reign. And we're going to talk about the king's reign all the way up to the spring of next year. And then there's a section, second section called the king's ransom. And I was actually looking at uh, the stained, piece of stained glass this morning, if you can see it here. Uh, we actually kind of have it beautifully uh, depicted here in this lovely piece of, uh, old piece of stained glass we have. Uh, the king's reign represented here by the crown, and right through the middle, the second part is Jesus going to Jerusalem towards the cross, the king's ransom. So we're going to treat each smaller pivot in the story like a, like a new sermon series of Jesus' ministry. And so the first one is the king's authority and priority. Jesus comes into the scene, and he shows how he actually is the one to have authority over the universe, but demonstrated here on this earth. So instead of getting ahead of ourselves and rushing towards the cross and the empty tomb, we're going to try as much as possible to get on the ground and experience each of these moments with Jesus, just like Simon Peter did. I'm excited to do that with you. And with each pivot, getting to further know and trust Jesus better than we do right now. So whether you don't trust him at all and you're just curious or you've walked with him for a long time, my hope is that each week we kind of get to know Jesus a little better, maybe see him in a way we haven't seen him before. Now Mark's aim, his purpose in writing is this, to persuade his readers from regarding Jesus merely as a man from Jesus of Nazareth, as he says in verse 9, to trusting Jesus as the Son of God, as he says in verse 1. And he calls this the good news or the gospel of Jesus. We immediately, even in these opening paragraphs, get a good news presentation. We learn in the opening lines here 
the reign of Jesus, it is a God-giving reign. He wants, God, want, God wants to give of himself, though he don't deserve it. And by the end of Mark, and, and, and sorry, by the end of the passages we read this morning, Mark is previewing the, the entire good news message about Jesus. So in these opening lines, we're going to see that God gives the perfect setup, God gives among himself, and God gives of himself, because he is a giving God. So first, God gives to us the perfect setup for Jesus to enter into. God gives the perfect setup for Jesus to enter into. Now today, most young people call it being ghosted. But historically, it's called the silent treatment. Now I I had a good friend and this guy I led to Christ years ago. I, I reached out to him probably like six, seven times without a response. Now, my friend, he's a web designer. And at the time, we were, we were just coming to PCC. I was on my way out. And what he does as a web designer was a little too expensive for our church at the time. So I went with a cheaper option than with him. And I knew telling him this, it might sting a little, as I told him. Uh, and he was giving me, like, the friend discount for sure. Like, don't get me wrong. But even so, it was too expensive. So I knew it would sting. But as I reached out to him after that regarding friends kind of stuff one time, two times, Three times, I don't hear anything. Four times, five, six times, I don't hear anything. Months of silence, I'm not hearing from this guy. Like, I'm like, what the heck, man? And, and so it got to the point where I resorted to sending him an email. And not, sending him, not just sending an email, but copying his wife on the email. I know you know, you know you're desperate. You're in a place where the ghosting really hurts when you copy someone's spouse on the communication, right? So in some ways, it could feel like a betrayal. But anyway, I did it. That's how desperate I was. I wanted to hear from this guy. And I was, I was reading this week that being ghosted or silently treated, like neurobiologically, impacts the same parts of the brain as it would losing someone to a death. We feel it deeply, right? If someone just absolutely just vanishes from our life, it can really hurt, right? It creates a desperation to hear, that, hey, man, are we okay? Or are you actually just, just let me hear from you that you're okay? Well, God gave his chosen people, Israel, a people of the word, nearly 500 years of silent treatment, 500 years of feeling ghosted. Now, it's not unusual for for God's long patience to wear and grow thin and, and even to get upset with his people. Because like us, God's people, they would drift and they would start to do their own thing and ignore God themselves. And so every time that would happen, even the worst of times, God would send to his people a prophet to remind them of why they're getting punished, of why returning to God has so many benefits, and why, why he hasn't given up on them. And even though you kind of messed up, at least hearing something from God, something, even if it was kind of harsh, would kind of be reassuring, right? Because it's a relationship. And in that relationship... Even just to hear something from the other person, you're like, okay, you're out there. Like, I still matter. Well, as they drifted again, this time, they don't hear anything for a few years. And then for a decade, that decade turns into centuries. And then that turns into multiple centuries, hearing nothing from God. What would that feel like? The final book written in the Old Testament is Malachi, which was written around 480, 470 B.C. 480, and if you do the math, 480, 470 B.C., you start to see where I'm going with this, right? Well, here are the last words 
God's people hear from him. All right? Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Last words of the Old Testament. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, his preaching will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. It must have been a strange thing to hear for God's people, the very last thing, because Elijah had already lived and died and gone to be with God. God said, I'm going to send someone like Elijah, like an Elijah figure. All right, and he's going to come preach before this amazing, this great day of the Lord comes. So, so God does do this. After 500 years, he sends a preaching prophet who looks, who acts, who sounds like Elijah to precede Jesus by just a few months. And that's what we're told about here in verses 2 and 3. As it says, it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your, your way. The voice of one crying, trying to get your attention in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist looks like Elijah by his bizarre attire. Look with me in verse 6 if you have a Bible open. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, which might be common today, very uncommon back then, and especially to wear animal's hair. Now, in 2 Kings, the Old Testament book, 2 Kings chapter 1, the, the, the messengers of this king of Israel, they come back to the king with a message. And they mention how along the way they met a prophet. And that prophet wanted to give them a message of a dire prophecy, a bad news kind of prophecy. So the king asks, wait a minute, what did this messenger look like? And so the messengers tell him, well, he had this hairy garment on, and he had a leather belt. And so the king literally says, this is 2 Kings chapter, chapter 1, oh, you're talking about Elijah, the Tishbite. In other words, his clothing, Elijah's clothing, Elijah's appearance, it had become as iconic as the man himself. It had become emblematic of the man himself. The king knew right away, oh, I know who you're talking about. Everybody knows who you're talking about. Hairy garment, leather belt, it's Elijah. For example, you see mouse ears, and you think of who? You see these mouse ears, you think of who do you think of? Mickey Mouse, right? Okay, that's an easy one. Another, this should be easy as well, because this is iconic, right? Your, your mind immediately goes to whom if you see a, a shiny single silver glove? A shiny single silver, who do you think of? Shi Michael Jackson, right? For the kids out there, you remember Michael. Okay, well, if you were to see a man dressed in an outfit of animal's hair. If you saw an outfit of animal's hair with a giant leather belt, and you were living in this time, you would thought, oh, you're talking about Elijah, the prophet of Israel. He, he's back. John the Baptist also acts and sounds like Elijah. So he looks like Elijah. He also acts and sounds like Elijah. By immersing people in water, and talking about fire, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit. Now, Elijah, when he walked around with his hairy garment on and leather belt, his most famous iconic miracle occurred when he challenged the prophets of Baal, which was this Canaanite fertility god, to do their own miracle. All these, these prophets of Baal had come into Israel, and a lot of people started following them. In fact, most people started following them, and they drifted from God. And so 
He says, hey, why don't you guys do your own miracle? And when they couldn't, he told them he would call down fire from God in heaven. But before he did this sort of uh, ancient magic trick, really wasn't magic, it was God, but this, this, this feat of strength, if you will, first he baptized or immersed in water this altar of stone on which he would call down fire from God. So what he did, he gathered all these jars, I mean jars and jars, like a, a swimming pool's worth of water, and they put it all on this altar of stone. And then he called down fire, and fire came down from heaven and lit the stones on fire. Okay. Well, here comes John the Baptist. What does he do? He immerses people in water, and he predicts fire. How does he, the other biographies of Jesus mention John the Baptist talking about fire in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. He says he will baptize you with fire and the Spirit. So he immerses people in water, and he calls down fire. It's coming. So you have John the Baptist looking sounding, acting eerily akin to Elijah. And it was like an alarm bell, right? We oh, we oh, that's sort of the alarm bell. Hey, God has broken his silence. That, this long 500 years of you being, getting the silent treatment, he has broken it. And some great day of the Lord is about to arrive. Wake up, people. In other words, historically, God provided the perfect setup for his people to be ready for Jesus, some great day of the Lord's about to come. Wake up. It's coming. He's back. It's also the perfect setup God gives because Jesus arrives during, during an unprecedented time of peace and wealth on the earth. Now, Palestine, where Jesus came to, was had always been a place of unrest. Even when people, God's people, owned their own land. They were always harassed from every side, and, and they felt like, oh, at any moment, people are going to come attack us, until the first century of the Roman Empire. After the brief and tumultuous reign of a guy named Julius, then came the long and stable reign of the Roman Emperor uh, Octavian, or Augustus Caesar. And that's the time in which Jesus is born. Galilean Jews during this time grew up eating well, living well. There was an abundance of grain, of sheep, of olives. And you know, when you're not constantly struggling to survive, and we don't really know this living in Northern California. Most of us don't know this. Some do. Some do, but most of us don't. When you're not struggling constantly to survive, you can finally take a deep breath and you can think about deeper things of life. You can think about purpose. You can think about meaning. You can think about afterlife. And maybe that's why you're even here this morning or listening online. Jesus arrives during this perfect, perfect moment in history where the people had time to really consider those kinds of things, purpose, meaning, afterlife, listen, and really weigh it for themselves. Like you could do things like wealthy people do, like go to Burning Man, right? Go out to a desert, here's some radical, and then get immersed by water. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, it's okay. That's all right. But that's basically what's happening here. So God gives this perfect setup. Also, God gives among himself. So I went to a Catholic school for about six years. And so I sat through many a, a mass and religion class. And I remember the topic of marriage coming up in about the 10th or 11th grade in religion class, right? And the teacher began to explain how marriage worked in the Catholic Church. And he talked about, well, you first 
if you wanted to get married, you and the other person, you'd first meet with a priest for premarital counseling. And upon saying that, about half the class kind of like raised their hands slowly. And all of us who raised their hand at the same protest were like, wait, wait, how can a person, a, a priest, a person who's never experienced marriage, talk about two, marriage with two people who want to get married? Like, how does that work? Like, this guy's never been married in his life. Like, what, like how's he going to talk about this from his experience? Well, you could make the same argument about God. His big thing is to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And you could protest, well, easy for him to say, he's never come down and lived next to my neighbor. Right? I mean, uh, he, he, I mean, God, he has spent eternity in heaven without a neighbor like him, a community to love. He's telling us to love our neighbors. But then we read something pretty startling, don't we, in verses 10 and 11. I mean, this is how startling this would be for God's people, and I want to take you there. When, he, when Jesus came out out of the water, having been baptized, he immediately saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And we realize in that moment that the Son of God has always existed among community. He's actually always had neighbors. There's this phrase uh, in love songs sometimes you hear repeated that someone will move heaven and earth just to, cre- just to reconnect with the one they love. Right? I'll move heaven and earth. Well, God the Spirit here tears open heaven to reconnect with one he loves, the Son of God. And then God the Father actually sings the love song himself for everyone listening to hear. It's like one of those great romance movies, right? Everyone's around to hear this. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The community of love from above continues when God the Father sends his angels down to Jesus to minister to him. That literally means to, to practically help him during the Son of God's most trying moment in his life to this time. In other words, there's all this love coming from this community of heaven. And this, friends, what we read this morning is the most revealing glimpse we get in the entire New Testament of this community. God revealing himself in community is this eternally self-giving, other-loving, other-honoring kind of community often known as the Trinity. God is one essence, but he shows himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's kind of like how you might have uh, the same H2O molecules, right? You learned this in, in science class early on, but those same H2O molecules can show themselves as a, a water or a gas or a solid. Each person of the Trinity honors, loves, defers to the other member. The early leaders of the Greek church had a word for it, perichoresis. Perichoresis was the word they had for this. And if you notice in perichoresis, that word choreography comes from that. Perichoresis, choreography. And that's what it was. It literally means to, to dance or to flow around. And this is the picture of the community of God. It's this constant thing. It's this constant raising of the glass, giving a toast, wanting to honor the other, Father, Son, Spirit. And we get a glimpse of this at the beginning of Jesus' story that there's this community of love. And the only other glimpse we get of it, it's not quite as vivid as here at the beginning of Jesus' story, but the only other glimpse we get of it is at the beginning of God's big story. 
Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and it's right here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Notice the similarities to Mark. God speaks from above. In this case, let there be light. The Spirit hovers above the earth like a what? What hovering reminds you of? Like a bird, right? Hovering like a dove. All of this is from the beginning. What does Mark Gospels say as he opens? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Mark is drawing a line, a straight line, back to the beginning. And he's saying, hey, you remember that creation story where there's about to be a new creation God's community is once again going to bring order and form to where there is chaos in life, but this time not to creation in general, but to humanity specifically. He wants to bring new creation to human beings specifically. God the Son invites us in the community of God in order to, to bring order to the chaos of our lives, to fill the void in our souls, not just in creation, generally speaking, in us. And this is the introduction to God sharing community with us here in Mark. That not only does God give among himself, that God gives of himself to us, finally. And he does this in three ways that previews this good news message that we're going to hear throughout over the next year. Three specific ways God gives of himself that he previews right here. The first one is Jesus resists the temptation that we could not. Jesus resists the temptation that we could not. God the Spirit is the one who drives Jesus out to the wilderness to be constantly tempted by a rebellious, evil ex-angel named Satan. And, and, and the Holy Spirit drives Jesus out there because Jesus has to defeat evil, not as this sort of powerful God, but as a man. He has to defeat evil as a man. And the other biographies of Jesus' life, we see that Jesus doesn't defeat evil with some like divine weapon, with like a hammer of Thor or something like that, and he stomps on the ground, and there's like a big earthquake and whatever. Instead, he strikes down all of, all of Satan's temptation towards hunger, towards security, towards power and influence, the things, kind of things we want. Jesus resists these things as a man by quoting the Bible back to Satan. All he does is just take out the Bible. He remembers it from heart, and he quotes that back to Satan as he's tempted, just like you and I might. And guess what happens? Jesus lives the perfect life of love we are unable to. He repeatedly resists temptations that we could not. And guess what? Satan never shows up again in Mark's story. Satan never shows up again in this story. This is the end. Mark is saying evil is finally defeated with what Jesus does. Evil is finally defeated. The rest is just mop-up duty. A human has to live the life God intended for him. A human has to live that life that God intended all of us to live so that God will accept his life on another's behalf, which Jesus would do one day. Jesus also identifies with our sin. He identifies with our sin. If you remember from our reading, John's baptism symbolized people turning from the big no in their hearts called sin, the big sort of I want to live life my way in their hearts, that the Bible calls sin and turning to God 
And that's why they were getting baptized. Is to, as they were baptized, they were confessing their sins. So why does Jesus, a man we're told had never sinned, why does he get baptized also? Why? why? Well, in the Old Testament, there are a couple moments in the Old Testament where God's leaders confess on behalf of God's people. A man named Ezra and a man named Daniel. They start talking to God and confessing sin of their people. But as they do so, they include themselves in that confession. They start to take personal responsibility for what the people had committed, even though they themselves individually had not done the things and not committed the sin that God's people had done. Well, by getting baptized, Jesus is saying, I'm identifying with the sins of my people. I'll, I'll take responsibility also. I'll put the sin on my shoulders also, which he would do to the uttermost on the cross. And finally, Jesus immerses us into the community of God. Look again in verse 8. He will baptize you. John says of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, the New Testament was originally written in the language of Greek, and we have it translated into our native tongue, English. Well, well the Greek word here, baptizo, baptize, literally means to immerse. And so John is saying, Jesus is going to come along. He will immerse you into God the Spirit. And what a picture that is. It's like, I'm not just going to give you one of those stamps that sort of stamp on your hand and say, oh yeah, you're with God. Or, or like some sort of necklace or, or not to clothe you like on a uniform, but totally immerse you into the person of God. You, you are plunged deep into the life of God. Have you ever gone uh, scuba diving or something in your life? Uh, it is, you, you know that feeling of being surrounded by that water, surrounded above and below, into the sides, it's everywhere. This is the picture John's giving us, that Jesus will do this. He will immerse us into this divine dance, this self-giving love. And by immersing us into it, that, will, that love will bring order out of the chaos of our lives and the void in our souls. He will fill it. This is what he will give us. So let's summarize what God's going to give us. At the very beginning of Jesus' story, Jesus lives the Jesus lives a life of resisting temptation that we could not. He shoulders a responsibility for sin that we deserve. And in doing so, he forever immerses us into the community of God. Father, Son, Spirit, we get to be immersed in it. And all that's required, friend, for this good news to become good for you is to move from regarding Jesus as a mere man, from Jesus of Nazareth, as Mark says in verse 9, to trusting Jesus as the Son of God, as he says in verse 1. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we're grateful for this good news. You came at the perfect time. You gave us the perfect circumstances. You showed us what it was like to live in a community of love and you revealed yourself fully as Jesus came on the scene. And then immediately you start to say, I'm going to give myself to you. This would be a God-giving reign from a God who loves to give of himself to us. And all we have to do is trust you. Thank you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.